You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 412 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, June 16th, 2022. And in this episode, I want to talk primarily about ecumenism, or if you will, being ecumenical. You may have heard the term ecumenical. And you may not know quite what it means. You might not have ever paid much attention to it. And for that matter, I may not fully comprehend what is meant by it. Where did it come from, this idea of ecumenism? And what should we make of it? Honestly, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a mixed bag? Does it depend? Honestly, any way you slice it, this book I just read and reviewed in Our last episode, Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland, has a certain how-to guide to ecumenism feel to it throughout. I'll just be honest. That's my honest opinion in any event. I could be wrong. But there is a certain ecumenical bend to it. And I'll explain what I mean as we go along. But for now, just suffice to say... That book has me thinking that I want to understand better what it means to be ecumenical. I think that, and then I think to myself, well, wait, what is actually the definition of ecumenical? And is that a bad thing? Is that a point against the book if it's true? I think it's true, but if it's true, is that a bad thing? It might be true that it is fairly ecumenical, but it might not be true that that's a bad thing. So, That's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Now, I'll be honest as well. I'm trying to be honest throughout, if you haven't noticed. But just to emphasize through repetition, I am showing you my cards. I'm not bluffing. I'm not a very good poker player. As I think of the term ecumenical or ecumenism, there's an awareness that dawns on me how much of what could be called ecumenical, has marked my own Christian life as a 35-year-old American man. My dad, for instance, was raised Mennonite. My mom grew up attending Pensacola Christian in Florida. My dad being from Montana, my mom from Florida, opposite sides of the country, very different outlooks on a number of things based on those cultural contexts. But my mom attended Pensacola Christian, Bob Jones University, Cedarville University. My dad attended several Mennonite schools and then also ended up at Cedarville University where he met my mom and they got married. And then along came me and my younger brother, Bryce. But besides that, I had a part-time job in high school at the Highland County Family YMCA. And I think you could call the YMCA a fairly ecumenical, non-denominational, interdenominational, generalized Christian organization, at least at its roots, at least historically, from my understanding. They are not overtly doctrinarian. They are just a clean, safe place for exercising. So there's that. And in fact, I remember... When I was working for the YMCA, I got in just a little bit of trouble with our manager, our executive director actually was his title, executive director for the Highland County Family YMCA, because I was playing some overtly Christian music, contemporary Christian, Christian rock, Christian rap, and I was encouraged to stop because some people felt like it wasn't really the most upbeat. And By that, they meant that they wanted to listen to more um, secular music. Honestly, 
Uh, they wanted to listen to secular music. They didn't really want to listen to Christian music. And all the while, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, well, it's the YMCA. It's not the YMSA, but I digress. Besides my job at the YMCA, one-way Bible study and First Baptist Church of Hillsboro, Ohio, joint services with many of the other churches in town, irrespective of their denomination, on purpose, actually, I think, seeking out other denominations to have joint services with on Christmas Eve in particular. That was a big influence on me growing up in my high school years, early 20s, that, hey, you know what? As long as we all love Jesus, what does it matter if we're Methodists or Baptists or Presbyterians or Catholics or Pentecostals or whatever? Like, what does it matter? Let's all just get together. Church of Christ, it doesn't matter. Let's all get together. Let's sing and let's worship and let's have a joint service. Let's put all of our doctrinal differences aside and we'll celebrate Christmas together. Also, too, besides that, I admit, I confess, I used to listen to K-Love for a number of years. K-Love, by the way, if you think about it, is about as watered down, ecumenical, nondescript, generic Christian as it gets. K-Love, contemporary Christian music station, they are about having generalized Christian messages but without getting too deep into anything doctrinal that might potentially turn off, offend, upset, ostracize, alienate segments of their listeners who don't agree. So there's that, right? Caleb, I used to listen to. I have in more recent years decided that I really don't care for Caleb. Moving away from Ohio helped because we had a big Caleb station on FM back then, back there back in 2012 and before. But that was an influence for as long as I was commuting back and forth to work before I had all the newfangled iPhone, listening to Apple Music or Amazon Music or Audible or podcasts or whatever. used to listen to quite a lot of Caleb and I'm okay with the fact that I don't anymore. I'll just say that. Also too, besides that, I used to attend with my wife and our children Good News Gathering in Hillsborough, Ohio. Yes, they were affiliated with, and I assume they still are affiliated with, Willow Creek Churches, the church network centered around Willow Creek. And yet their name even avoided using the word church. This is a Good News Gathering. Essentially what that translates into in more traditional language is gospel church. Well, we're going to focus on the gospel. That's what that's about. And one thing I really remember from my time there was anytime we would start getting into discussions about like any depth at all of Christian doctrine, there was a lot of discomfort from leadership because they wanted to reserve any in-depth conversations about doctrine to themselves, lest any of the seekers, the truth seekers, we were going to be so oriented towards attracting and retaining might be offended, confused, out of their depth, not sure what to make of it. And so there was that. But that was a fairly ecumenical, non-denominational, nondescript church experience, Christian experience in my early 20s until we moved away from Southern Ohio back to my home state of Montana. Also, before we moved back to Montana, I participated one time with a prison ministry in Southern Ohio called Kairos. Kairos was a mixture of lay and clergy volunteers going into correctional institutes to minister, share the gospel with, sing songs to, give homemade cookies to inmates, convicts, try and tell them about Jesus, help them to feel the love of Jesus from us. But it was very ecumenical. It was very ecumenical. We had clergy and lay people from every denomination in the area going with us into that prison, into Ross County Correctional Institute. Very ecumenical. When my wife and I and our kids moved back to my home state of Montana, 
pretty much the entire time, with a very small exception of a few months when we moved to Sydney, Montana, we attended CMA churches. CMA stands for Christian and Missionary Alliance. So even there, we have this avoidance of the term denomination necessarily. I suppose you could call it a denomination, but still, it's the CMA. It's the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And we attended and were very involved in Glendive and Savage CMA churches, to a lesser extent Sydney, because we just weren't there very long at that church before we moved to Colorado. But besides these, I notice in recent years, I see more and more influence coming out of the Gospel Coalition online. TGC articles are often shared by pastors that I know across the country. I know pastors who are family, who are friends all over the U.S., and TGC, as the years have gone on, has become a primary resource, or so it seems, for content that pastors, whether that's senior pastors, associate pastors, youth pastors, music pastors, generalized leaders share. TGC puts out resources, but if you really think about it, TGC saying we're going to focus on the gospel is a inherently ecumenical position to take. We're not going to focus on our denominational differences. We're going to put those aside. We're going to focus on the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Are there other things besides just what is strictly termed the gospel, which are also important to the life and practice and health of the church, to the fruitfulness, to the faithfulness of the church? Yes, but we're going to set everything else aside. Yes, we'll have a little bit of a reformed, conservative, slight bias, but not much. And we will try and tamp that down as time goes on. But TGC is another major ecumenical influence, I think, that I have seen over my 35 years, more and more and more. Now, again, going back to Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, that's his book. And it's all about figuring out which doctrinal distinctions, which doctrinal disagreements are worth getting in a tizzy about, getting into a debate about, getting upset about, possibly even dividing, leaving a church over, leaving a network of churches over. And a big, important feature of his book is repeated calls for unity. Let's have unity. Let's not have division. Well, that's good, but let's make sure that this is not just one among many, many, many pushes for watering down what it is that we believe in and essentially having a de facto position of superficiality where we just don't get into any depth. We insist that superficiality, so long as we are centered on the so-called gospel, superficiality is actually a virtue. It's not a vice. We're just going to be in this together. Well, what's up with that? Is that all that it's cracked up to be? Is that actually thoroughly biblical? We're saying we're about the gospel because the Bible tells us to be. Well, what else does the Bible tell us to be about besides just the milk of the faith? We do read in the scriptures, in the text, that at a certain point, we should be able to consume more than just milk. We should be able to eat meat at a certain point. We should grow up. We should become mature. And that means moving on from these fundamental primary things to the broader implications for the Christian life. Plain and simple. My big concern, just I'll tell you on the front end, with what it means to be ecumenical, with what it means to be non-denominational, interdenominational, interfaith, even increasingly. My big concern is that we sacrifice faithfulness and a fulfillment, a full fulfillment of the Great Commission to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us, we are jettisoning that in the interest of making converts in far too many churches from what I've seen across the U.S., being connected with friends and family across the U.S., across the country, coast to coast. But you might be asking, 
a reasonable question, like I was asking this morning, which is part of the reason why we're talking about this in this episode. So, Garrett, what is ecumenism? What does it mean to be ecumenical? Well, I'll tell you, according to Wikipedia. (laughs) Wikipedia says ecumenism, also spelled ecumenism, it is spelled different, I promise, even though I said it the same way. I assume, because it doesn't say it's pronounced also ecumenism, I assume that it's pronounced the same, even if it's spelled differently. So I just said it the same way twice. Forgive me. Uh, One way it's spelled starting with an E. I'll just tell you. Okay. I'll be your eyes here. The other way it's spelled with an O. O O-E-C-U-M-E-N-I-S-M. Who spells it like that? I feel like the person who edited this Wikipedia article was trying to win an argument, actually. He's like, oh, sometimes it's spelled with an O, but it was actually a typo. And they're like, no way. And then he like goes and he edits the Wikipedia article. And he's like, see? Anyway, ecumenism. Moving on. And I quote, is the concept and principle that Christians who belong to different Christian denominations should work together to develop closer relationships among their churches and promote Christian unity. The adjective ecumenical is thus applied to any interdenominational initiative that encourages greater cooperation among Christians and among their churches. The fact that all Christians belonging to mainstream Christian denominations profess faith in Jesus and receive baptism according to the Trinitarian formula is seen as being a basis for ecumenism and its goal of Christian unity. Ecumenists cite John 17.20-23 as the biblical grounds of striving for church unity in which Jesus prays that Christians may be all one in order that the world may know and believe the gospel message. In 1920, the ecumenical patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Germanus V of Constantinople, wrote a letter addressed, quote, to all the churches of Christ wherever they may be, end quote, urging closer cooperation among separated Christians and suggesting a League of Churches, parallel to the newly founded League of Nations. Christian leaders from mainstream Christian churches resolved to establish the World Council of Churches to work for the cause of Christian unity. You know, it's funny. Sorry. Let's just pause for a second here. I think they want us to believe that this is very Christian. Are you getting that feeling too? Is that is that the vibe? that the Wikipedia article is giving to you as well. In 1937, and again, I'll requote this a second time. Christian leaders from mainstream Christian churches resolved to establish the World Council of Churches to work for the cause of Christian unity. It today includes churches from most major traditions of Christianity as full members, including the Assyrian Church of the East, the Old Catholic Church, the Oriental Orthodox Churches, the Lutheran World Federation, the Anglican Communion, the Baptist World Alliance, the Mennonite Churches, which my dad grew up in, the World Methodist Council, the Moravian Church, the Pentecostal Churches, and the World Communion of Reformed Churches, as well as most all jurisdictions of the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Catholic Church participates as an observer, sending delegates to official gatherings, which of course, right? Like, of course, The Catholic Church is like, yeah, we'll watch with morbid curiosity or because we're behind it, because we we want to get you all back into the fold, but we're not going to stoop to your level, I guess. I don't know. Moving on. Many regional councils affiliated with the World Council of Churches, such as the Middle East Council of Churches, National Council of Churches in Australia, and Christian churches together, work for the cause of Christian unity on the domestic level, with member denominations, including churches from the Oriental Orthodox, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Methodist, Anglican, and Reformed traditions, among others. Each year, Christians observe the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity for the Goal of Ecumenism, which is coordinated by the World Council of Churches and adopted by many of its member churches. The terms ecumenism and ecumenical come from the Greek, ecumenai, which means the whole inhabited world, and was historically used with specific reference to the Roman Empire. The ecumenical vision comprises both the search for the visible unity of the church, Ephesians 4.3, and the whole inhabited earth, Matthew 24.14, as the concern of all Christians. In Christianity, the qualification ecumenical was originally and still 
is used in terms such as ecumenical council and ecumenical patriarch in the meaning of pertaining to the totality of the larger church, such as the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, rather than being restricted to one of its constituent local churches or dioceses. 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 Hmm. Diocese. I'm going to say diocese. We'll just go with that. How about that? Used in this sense, the term carries no connotation of reuniting the historically separated Christian denominations, but presumes a unity of local congregations and a worldwide communion. Key verses, just to sum up, because there were several that I mentioned in passing, and I went and I looked them up. I thought, okay, well, let's read those whole verses in context, since these are often cited by those who are pushing for this ecumenical vision. Let's read these verses and let's contend with them and see, are they on to something here? Are we wrong? Are they mistaken? Are they misrepresenting, misinterpreting the scriptures? What do we do here? So first of all, John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's pretty compelling. I'm not going to lie. That's pretty compelling. There's no disputing when you read that, that Jesus wanted unity among those who believe in him. When I read that, no doubt about it. And it is part of our testimony. There's no two ways about it. Also, Ephesians 4 verse 3 will include verses 1 through 2 as well. Paul, the apostle, writes to the church at Ephesus, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There you have it. There is the apostle Paul saying we should be about Unity, unity of the spirit, maintain, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Bear with one another implies that sometimes this will take some work. It will take some work for you to bear with me. (laughs) It will take some work for me to bear with you. We will have to be humble and that will not just happen on its own sometimes. Sometimes it will take some effort and some diligence on our part to be gentle, to be patient, to bear with one another in love. But moving on, Matthew 24, 14. And I quote, this is Jesus. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And this, by the way, was the impetus for the CMA, for the Christian and Missionary Alliance being started by A.B. Simpson. A.B. Simpson and others saw this verse in particular and said, oh, well, if that's the precondition, we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations And that will bring about the eschaton. That will bring about the second coming of Christ. Well, let's get to it. Come on. Let's go. quicker we get this done, the quicker we can all go home. (laughs) Which, to be fair, I mean, hats off to A.B. Simpson. I mean, that's, to my mind anyways, that's an admirable position to take. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We know that it's going to be difficult, but we want to go and share the gospel 
all over the world. That's cool. Can we just say that? That's cool. Because you want Jesus to come back again and call us home and make all things new and make us perfect, make us whole again. It's hard to fault you for that. Now, that said, here is my counterpoint. This is not to invalidate, but rather to complete the rest of what I just read for you and to give a word of caution to this whole ecumenical business. Deep breath. Deep breath. (laughs) Bear with me here. Bear with me, because this could be misunderstood really easily. And yet, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Four things. Look them up. Four things that are not all just positive encouraging. Four things we're supposed to do with all Scripture that is breathed out by God. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's inerrant, infallible, perfect, complete. And this is why we should have our minds transformed by the reading of it, by the diligent study of it. Matthew 7, 15 through 27. Again, red letter Bibles will have these words in red because this is Jesus speaking. And I quote, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And I quote, Our Savior, not my opinion, not my interpretation, That's what my Bible reads. So we know that the ecumenical push can't, if it is to be legitimate, it can't just pick passages like John 17, 20 through 23, Ephesians 4, 3, Matthew 24, 14, and neglect Matthew 7, 15 to 27. And a big question I would have about the legitimacy of the ecumenical movement is, does it does it apply Matthew seven fifteen through 27? Is that all left up to a case-by-case, individual churches, local churches basis? Or is it possible to say to entire movements of churches, we are looking at the fruit that you are bearing. We are obeying Jesus when it says the Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, as Jesus says. When it says that, when it says teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that, my friends, is the gospel. The gospel is not just, oh, you believe that God is one? You do well. Come on in. Oh, you believe in 
something approximating Trinitarian Christianity. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You say, Lord, Lord, come on in. We're all Christians here. Not so fast. There is a place for saying, hey, what about what Jesus tells us, what he commands us? To beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What about what Jesus says about recognizing them by their fruits? What about what he says about everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, and how not all of them will enter the kingdom of heaven? Because not all of them are actually doing the will of his Father who is in heaven. And the very pious salvation by grace through faith crowd bristles at this a little bit, but you can't be holier than Jesus. You're not allowed. So there is a question of, hey, what about judging fruit, determining whether a tree is a good tree or a bad tree? Are you a good witch or a bad witch? (laughs) Moving on. Again, from Wikipedia. Now, this is a subsection of the earlier, larger article. You can go read it for yourself on ecumenism. But this is a subsection called the Modern Ecumenical Movement. And this is interesting stuff. It really, really is. I want to research it more. If you have some recommendations for me, please help me out. Do me a solid. I've picked up some books just today, actually, at Wampus Used Books in Loveland, Colorado, with my wife and our son, Andrew, and my father-in-law, Jerry Duff. Also, my wife only told me once we got home, forgive me for the rabbit trail, but my wife only told me once we got home that she saw a very old copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe at Wampus Books. And I'll be honest with you, there's a part of me that wants to go back and buy it tomorrow because... It's an important book that we are reading this year for school. Some of our boys are reading it for school this year. So why don't we just have an old copy that really did help to spark a realization of the horrors of slavery in America, which in large part helped to precipitate the Civil War, which is debatable on whether that was so great. But I don't think it's debatable that slavery was abolished in its form at that time, I think we have a new slavery to contend with, which even now Democrats are trying feverishly to enact. But that's a story for another time. But moving on. Again, from Wikipedia. One understanding of the ecumenical movement is that it came from the Catholic Church's attempts to reconcile with Christians who had become separated over theological issues. Others see the 1910 World Missionary Conference as the birthplace of the ecumenical movement. Others yet point to the 1920 encyclical of the Eastern Orthodox ecumenical patriarch Germanus V, quote, to the churches of Christ everywhere, end quote, that suggested, quote, a fellowship of churches, end quote, similar to the League of Nations. Earlier, Nicholas Ludwig, Count von Zindorf, 1700 to 1760, the renewer of the Moravian Church in the 18th century, was the first person to use the word ecumenical in this sense, his pioneering efforts to unite all Christians, regardless of denominational labels, into a church of God in the spirit. Notably, among German immigrants in Pennsylvania, were misunderstood by his contemporaries. Nathan Söderblom, Archbishop of Uppsala, the head of the Lutheran Church of Sweden, is known as the architect of the ecumenical movement of the 20th century. During the First World War, he called on all Christian leaders to work for peace and justice. His leadership of the Christian life and work movement in the 1920s has led him to be recognized as one of the principal founders of the ecumenical movement. His was instrumental in chairing the World Conference of Life and Work in Stockholm. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I almost said syndrome. Sweden. (laughs) 
Let's play a word association game. I'll say Stockholm. You say Syndrome, right? Of course. (laughs) Stockholm, Sweden, in 1925. At the Stockholm Conference in 1925, the culminating event in Soderblom's ecumenical work, Protestant and Orthodox Christians from the major Christian denominations, such as the Lutheran and Anglican churches, were all present and participating, with the exception of the Catholic Church, which was a much-regretted absence. He was a close friend of the English ecumenist George Bell. In 1930, was one of the recipients of the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize laureate, for the cooperation between Christian church communities brings peace, and the first clergyman to receive this prize, which is interesting. It's very interesting, actually. The contemporary ecumenical movement gained speed through the 1910 Edinburgh Missionary Conference. However, this conference would not have been possible without the pioneering ecumenical work of the Christian youth movements. The Young Men's Christian Association, what did I tell you? That is the YMCA, by the way, founded 1844. The Young Women's Christian Association, that's the YWCA, which is the sister organization, go figure, to the YMCA, founded 1855. The World Student Christian Federation, founded 1895, and the Federal Council of Churches, founded 1908, predecessor to today's National Council of Churches USA, led by Methodist layman John R. Mott, former YMCA staff, and in 1910, the general secretary of WSEF. The World Mission Conference marked the largest Protestant gathering to that time with the express purposes of working across denominational lines for the sake of world missions. After the First World War, further developments were the Faith and Order Movement, led by Charles Henry Brent, and the Life and Work Movement, led by Nathan Soderblom. In the 1930s, the tradition of an annual World Communion Sunday to celebrate ecumenical ties was established in the Presbyterian Church and was subsequently adopted by several other denominations. After World War I, which had brought much devastation to many people, the Church became a source of hope to those in need. In 1948, the first meeting of the World Council of Churches took place. Despite the fact that the meeting had been postponed due to World War II, the Council took place in Amsterdam with the theme of, and I quote, man's disorder and God's design, end quote. The focus of the church and the council following the gathering was on the damage created by the Second World War. The council and the movement went forward to continue the efforts of unifying the church globally in the mission of helping all those in need, whether it be a physical, emotional, or spiritual need. The movement led to an understanding amongst the churches that, despite difference, they could join together to be an element of great change in the world, to be an agent of hope and peace amongst the chaos and destruction that humans seem to create. More importantly, the council and the movement led not only to ecumenism, but to the forming of councils amongst denominations that connected churches across continental lines. Today, the World Council of Churches sees its role as sharing, quote, the legacy of the one ecumenical movement and the responsibility to keep it alive, end quote, and acting, quote, as a trustee for the inner coherence of the movement, end quote. Some scholars such as Antoinette Sabau think that the features that ecumenism may display today could testify against the idea of a diminished interest in ecumenical matters, and rather for the fact that essential concepts of ecumenism have already become integrative parts of contemporary theologies. And that is a quote, by the way. The features, and I quote, that ecumenism may display today could testify against the idea of a diminished interest in ecumenical matters, and rather for the fact that essential concepts of ecumenism have already become integrative parts of contemporary theologies. Now, what does that mean, right? Like you're listening to this probably and you're thinking to yourself, like, what? What? Let me boil it down. The features that ecumenicalism may display today actually don't represent people being less, less interested in being ecumenical. Actually, the features of ecumenicalism may prove that we have already become 
very ecumenical and that our ecumenicalism has become an integrative part of our contemporary theologies. In other words, we have baked it into our theology. One might even say we have so prioritized unity and ecumenicalism that it's a dominant feature of how we do theology and how we approach doctrinal doctrinal questions. But we we approach doctrinal questions with a view to how is this going to impact unity, first and foremost, and that might not be so good. That might not be so good. Some quick observations, and then I've got to run because I am out of time for this episode, just about. The modern ecumenical movement, if you ask me, seems to embody the ideal of promoting unity above nearly all other considerations. Not just promoting unity in the abstract, but specifically promoting unity within the sphere of everyone who claims to be a Christian. Oh, you claim to be a Christian? Come on in. Yeah, come on in. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. You say you're a Christian? Yeah, good enough. Cool. Okay. Also, too, it's interesting if you were Listening closely to that Wikipedia article that I was reading long sections of for you, the post-war consensus in the 20th century found its expression in Christianity through the ecumenical movement. Don't miss that. The post-war consensus can be accurately summarized, I think, in Return of the Strong Gods by R.R. Reno, chief editor at First Things Magazine. Excellent book. Excellent, excellent book about the divorce of our commitment to our family, to our religion, our creed, our country, from our conception of ourselves. In ages past, all of those were integral inseparable parts of who we were, and yet post-World War I and especially post-World War II, the post-war consensus, <laughs> the post-war consensus was to shed all of that in the interest of world peace at a just very, very basic level. That's the big idea. We want world peace, so we've got to give up on all these things that sometimes potentially cause wars, which then expand into world wars. So we're just going to shed all of our strong commitments to anything. If you want to see the movie equivalent of the post-war consensus in sci-fi form, check out Equilibrium, starring Christian Bale and Sean Bean. Great, great sci-fi movie. Actually, I think it came out Around the same time that The Matrix did, it is arguably a better film. I think it's more artistic, and especially given the fact that they didn't make uh, dumpster fire sequels like The Matrix did. <laughs> I think it's maybe a better movie, actually, which reminds me, I need to watch that one with my kids. But the big idea is we're going to get away from attachment because attachment leads to strife and jealousy and troubles. This is also central to Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. I think George Orwell and 1984 were onto something, but I think maybe a better fit for our circumstance is actually Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. If you're reading dystopian science fiction, check out Brave New World and tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that's not a closer fit. I think it is. Also, another good book to read on the post-war consensus, Twilight of the American Enlightenment by George M. Marsden. That is another one which catalogs how what we think of as being this revolution in our sexual ethic, in our family values, in the 1960s and the 1970s, and then the whirlwind being reaped in the 1980s, 90s, 2000s, because of all these broken homes, broken families. Actually, 
those seeds were planted earlier, like for instance, in the 1950s and the 1940s, this push towards collectivism, this push towards needing experts for everything. Experts, please tell us what to do. Please tell us how to parent, how to have marriage, how to have faith, how to live, how to have our recreation, everything. We can't do anything without science and without experts and without secular science, more to the point. And as Marsden catalogs, that was the beginning of the unraveling of our prosperity when we so committed ourselves. Actually, I, th- I would say, remembering now rightly, he says it's before the 1950s. 1950s, conformity was actually not a conservative ideal. This collectivistic uniformity, everybody's got to have a cookie cutter approach to everything. We all have to have the same haircut. We all have to look exactly the same, dress the same, drive the same cars, live in the same style houses, do the same things. This uniformity, that was not a conservative and traditional American ideal. That was actually a big government statist, central planners, mass producing goods for fighting World War II type of idea, but just allocated for peacetime ends instead of wartime ends. But I would highly recommend R.R. Reno's Return of the Strong Gods, George M. Marsden's Twilight of the American Enlightenment, and to boot, The Internationalists by Scott J. Shapiro and Una Hathaway. If you want to hear the post-war consensus described and explained and chronicled by people who think it was a really great thing and still is, read The Internationalists by Scott J. Shapiro and Una Hathaway. Once upon a time, Scott J. Shapiro was following me on Twitter before I deleted my Twitter and then started it up again and then got suspended for calling Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee. Um, Nothing, actually. I just said that what he said was retarded. It was a retarded thing that he said, and it was. It was. I regret nothing, but I'm still locked out of my Twitter account months later. Months into my 12-hour suspension. (laughs) The goal of the post-war consensus, just to give you a high-level view, was to reprogram humanity, to re-educate humanity, to decouple concerns for national honor and the warrior ethic from all of our traditions and norms, and where that required just doing away with or watering down or bastardizing our traditions and our norms, even our religious convictions. The end goal was presented as being nothing less than saving us from mutually assured destruction, nuclear holocaust, World War III, can't have that. This is for world peace, after all. Getting at the root of our conflicts meant in the minds of the secularists, the elites around the world, particularly in the US and the UK, getting at the root of our wars to cut them off, to stop any future wars, That meant diminishing the importance of nearly all differences and distinctions between people. And in turn, in our day, that has helped to fuel the erosion of conviction about even the most basic of distinctions between human beings like gender and sexuality. Stay tuned in future episodes. I hope to do a review of both Even Exile by Rebecca Merkel and also Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? But nevertheless... The consequences of the post-war consensus have been a concentrated progressive deconstruction of all efforts, all arguments focused on affirming even the most basic of observations about reality, anywhere such might threaten unity. If there's a disagreement about it, let's just jettison it and let's just boil this down to what we can all agree on, if at all possible. And if you can't do that, well, then you are not going to be playing with the big boys. You will not be at the top. And we will dispose of you as we see fit, as it seems convenient to us, because unity is the most important thing. Peace is preferred at any cost. What's required towards the end of global world peace, 
equity, inclusivity, diversity, is a watering down of all our convictions, an avoidance of depth anywhere, certainly anywhere that has historically caused divisions or could reasonably be expected to in the present or future cause divisions, particularly if the divisions might lead to conflict, particularly if the conflict might lead to violence. But isn't it odd, I'll leave you with this, this last thought, isn't it odd that unity always just so happens to be on liberal terms, on progressive terms, on leftist terms increasingly? And I wonder if this isn't because the liberals early on cornered the market on this push for unity. Everywhere you look, you will find that they have already set deep the terms of the discussion and the debate to guaranteed their preferred outcome. It is not an honest discussion where they are learning just as much from you as you are from them. No, as a matter of fact, they expect you to talk, but them to tweak you as you talk because you're being calibrated by them, not the other way around in any measure, in any, in any significant measure. That is the post-war consensus. And dare I say it from reading the Wikipedia article, tell me what you think, if you think I'm wrong, but from reading the Wikipedia article on this push for ecumenical Christianity in the past hundred years, this push for ecumenism in the past century It certainly looks like this post-war consensus just took a Christian form, and now the church looks just like the United Nations. A scary thought, to be sure. It doesn't bear a great deal of resemblance to the ideals I read about in the Bible or the Reformation. In fact, the more I study both church history and modern history, the more unusual, superficial, and disproportionate this ideal of unity as it's been presented seems to me. The more in-depth the study and subsequent discussion, the harder the pushback feels to embrace a kind of liberalism which is called humility and peace. The more peace and unity with liberalism is stressed, the less recognizable to me anyways, the many examples and ideals of the Bible and the Reformation feel. The more foreign they feel, the more out of place they feel, the more unwelcome they feel. And that should concern all of us, I dare say. But again, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. If you've got some books to recommend, some resources to recommend to study more about this, please, by all means, send them my way. If you've got some comments, agreements, disagreements, by all means, let me know. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.